Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Bless, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for just the ability to sing your name uh, praise. Lord, thank you for the breath that we have um, to worship you. Father, I thank you for the time that we've spent in song praising um, and giving honor and glory to your name. Lord, I pray that we would continue um, with the same mindset as we dive into your word. Lord, I pray that you would um, open our ears and our hearts to hear what you'd have to say. Father, I pray that you would continue to shape us and mold us into your likeness. Lord, I pray that you would uh, move us out of the way when necessary. Lord, that you would um, give Kevin the words um, to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, that um, yeah, your words um, would be what we hear and what we take away. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So, happy last Sunday in February. I think next week most of you guys will be off for spring break, so enjoy that. Uh, I want to give you guys a quick update. Um, if we can go ahead and throw up the slide on chairs, Kristen, sorry I didn't tell you about that. Um, we are 10% of the way to having new chairs. Um, as you guys know, uh, I've been telling you guys the last two weeks. Um, it's there somewhere. You'll find it. There's a picture somewhere. I know it's in there. Um, anyway, uh, we are 10% of the way to um, our, uh, meeting our funding goal for new chairs. As I told you guys a couple weeks ago, the chairs you guys are sitting in right now don't belong to us. And here in a couple months, we're going to be moving from the room we are in now to the fellowship hall or the multi-purpose room or whatever you want to call that other building here on the campus because this building is being bought by another church. And so we're going to be moving over there and we're going to need chairs as we move over there. And so it's going to cost us probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $8,000 to buy new chairs. Yeah, chairs are expensive. Had no idea, did you? Um, and so anyway, um, as I told you guys uh, the, over the course of the last two weeks, um, that we've had some very generous donors agree to match uh, what college students give. And so um, I'm going to encourage you guys to uh, give $40 to a chair. You can put it in one of the offering baskets. You can go online and designate that you want to give towards the chair drive, and we will make sure that it gets put in that place so that here in a couple months, uh, when you guys come to worship with us, you have a place to sit. If we don't raise enough money, we'll stand and we'll sit on the floor Indian style uh, the way you did when you were in kindergarten. Uh, so it's up to you, because I stand the whole time anyway, so I'm not that bothered about it. But if you guys want chairs, I highly suggest you do that. So yes, Brian. Okay, so if you're one of those people that really care about, like, details, see, like, I don't. I'm like, a chair, cool, sweet, do I get to sit in it? Um, but Brian's got, uh, apparently when you buy chairs, the companies that sell them will send you a sample. I asked Brian if we could find somewhere around 200 companies to send one sample chair to us. Apparently, that's not an option. So I try to work the system for you guys. doesn't work that way. But if you want to see uh, what we're looking at getting, please see Brian uh, after the service. Awesome. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, just looking at uh, about five or six verses there. And we're going to spend a large portion of our time trying to continue this idea uh, that Paul has been conveying to us uh, over the course of the last couple weeks while he's writing this letter to the church at Rome, which is this. What does it mean to be a follower of God in Christ? Christ, and what does that mean for me on a practical level here and now? So not just, you know, many of us understand the theological, uh, maybe doctrinal, uh, biblical view of this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. I am in him, therefore I will spend eternity with him with him in heaven, but we often fail to understand the practical implications of that for the here and now. And so over the course of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he's been kind of working through various things to try to bring his audience to an understanding of how all-encompassing the gospel is. 
how all-encompassing the good news is, right? And so he, he started with just the basic argument that you and I are sinners separated from God, that that is a universal human truth, whether you were a Gentile, uh, bark-worshipping, Thor-worshipping like my ancestors, uh, you know, what, Northern European, Gentile, whatever you may be, or if you were a God-fearing Jew, that both were far from God because of sin. And then he went on to say that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not as a result of things that we do, but completely by the work of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. That is the kind of the, the big push he made in Romans chapter 3, this good news of the gospel. So in the first three to four chapters of, of Romans, he starts with the bad news about all of humanity, and then he moves into the good news of what God has done to rescue his creation from themselves. And then he goes on in Romans 5, 6, and 7 to talk about how grace saves us of all sins, past, present, and future, and he begins to start working through some practical implications of what that means, about how obedience to the law is important, but it's not what saves, and how those that run back to the law for, for life and vitality and, and to please God will be left wanting because they'll never meet the standard that God has set before them, and that the law was given to us simply to show us the magnitude in our, uh, of our sin and our need for God, but that we would never, ever be able to follow the law closely enough to earn God's favor. And he goes on to say that if we focus on obedience to the law as our means of fellowshipping with God, we're going to be on this roller coaster of emotions constantly, both with how we feel and relate to God, but also how we feel and relate just personally in our everyday lives. Because if we focus on obedience to the law as our hope and our vitality and our connection to God, we inevitably will realize our brokenness and will lead to fear of rejection and misguided views of who God is and what he's done. And so when we moved into Romans 8 last week, we saw that Paul started off that chapter with reminding his readers and his audience, if you are finding your identity in anything other than Christ, anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will feel like Paul does in Romans chapter 7 verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin? And then he gets to Romans 8.1 and he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's driving home this point to the church at Rome that you are as bad as advertised and worse than you think you are, and God is better than you think he is. He's as good as advertised. Guys, there is nothing on this planet that can measure up to the magnitude of what Paul is talking about here, other than God himself. There is nothing that will satisfy the way that God satisfies here in these two chapters. That those who are in Christ are in the Spirit. And if they are in the Spirit, you are free from slavery to sin and free to fullness of life in God. And that's what Paul's going to be focusing on today in the verses that we're looking at. What it, what it means to live life Fully. Now let me, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys have ever read or were forced to read the story of Oliver Twist? Okay, about half the room. Okay. Um, apparently the public high schools in the state of Florida do not mandate you read that book like the public school system in Virginia does. Um, and, and he, you know, I mean, I was forced to read that book in high school. If you can't tell, I'm still not happy about it. Um, you know, nothing, by the way, nothing encourages people to grow and experience literature like being forced to read it by an angry, grumpy teacher who's overworked and underpaid and then make you write a long paper about it, right? It's like my love for literature really just grew during my high school years as I read the spark notes for every book that was ever assigned to me in my English literature classes, right? Ken's a teacher and he's 
burning on the inside right now knowing that that's how I view literature. <laughs> right? I, I came to a love of reading well after the public school system robbed me of my joy in it later on. Okay? But in that book, right, or in that, in that classic story, that classic novel, right, it's the story of this, this, this young man, and he's, he's born an orphan. And he, he ends up being placed in this orphanage at a, at a young age, and he's basically in this orphanage for about nine years. He's parentless. He, he's, you know, struggling with what it means to, to, to have a family and, and, and live in, the, in the, the, the orphanage that he's grown up in. And then over the course of time, he experiences what you may or may not consider to be a number of adoptions, um, where, where different people kind of take him in or take him under his wing, ult- ultimately because he was kind of thrown out of the, the orphanage that he was in. And basically the poor kid can't catch a break over the course of time. He's, he's kind of taken in and taken back out, and then it, it culminates into him being involved with a, like a, a criminal like gang uh, in, in his hometown because the men who took him in, basically they would adopt orphans so they could train them to, to steal and commit crimes. That's the, the storylines. This is, this is the story of, of where he gives. And finally, at the end of the story, there's this, there's this man by the name of Mr. Brownlow who um, ends up finding out the truth about Oliver and, and gets him a share of an inheritance that's actually supposed to belong to him because of who his father is. And on top of that, he ends up adopting Oliver, and Oliver ends up finally having a family. Now, you see throughout the story little glimpses, and, and obviously I don't think this is Charles Dickens' main point, because I think the main point he was trying to kind of point out is how horrible kind of the adoption system was in, in the UK at the time. But one of the things you kind of see is the humanity in the story of Oliver longing for a family, and, and maybe in a lot of ways, more specifically, a father. And, and yet oftentimes, even when he experiences adoption or fostering or whatever term you want to use to describe what Oliver goes through, you see the father figures in his life, instead of laying down their life for his good and serving him, taking advantage of him and using him until, until finally you get to Mr. Brownlow. And the reason I share that story is because I think this understanding of being fatherless is exactly how Paul is going to re- relate God as father to us. That Paul has talked significantly, really pretty much since the beginning of Romans chapter 7, about mankind's struggle with sin and how we go back and forth and wrestling with it. And he's going to ultimately come to this place where he's going to show us human beings are longing for a dad. That we're longing for a father who's going to love us, who's going to pour into us, who's going to care for us. And that when we struggle on the macro level with our identity and who we are, it's because we don't understand the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ and also that we are adopted as his sons. And so Paul's going to go in depth about that this morning. And and I need to preface this by saying this. Everyone in here has a different background and story about dad. Right, who dad was, who dad wasn't, what dad did well, what dad didn't well. Some of you didn't even know your dad. Some of you guys have lost your dad. Some of you guys have a dad who might as well not be around because he's so absent. Right, one of the main problems we have as human beings in relating with God is because our relationships here on earth are fractured. Therefore, our relationships with our fathers are fractured meaning we then struggle to relate with the concept and the idea of who dad, who dad is. And more importantly, who the dad is. Because what we're going to see in our text this morning is that God the Father is not like your dad. I don't care if you have the best dad in the room. Some of you guys are really blessed. You have amazing fathers. God is better. And some of you guys in here this morning, I I, I can't even begin to fathom God as dad. This is where you start doing what we we talked about last week when we looked at Romans chapter 8, starting about verse 7 or 8, that we would be renewed in our minds and our understanding of who God is towards us because he is a good dad. All right, let's look at the text. Starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, 
we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will. Now, that word debtors there in verse 12 is the Greek word ophaletas. And it literally means one who owes and is under an obligation to do something for another person because they have either transgressed or they owe them some sort of a a payment. So it didn't just mean money. It could have meant a life debt. It could have meant a, a debt of servitude. But in some way, you are indebted to another person for a certain thing or a certain amount of time. Now, what Paul is saying here is you are not debtors to the flesh if you are in Christ. Meaning, you are not tied to finding your identity in your own works and your own performance and the way you live your life. Now, this is, this is hard, right? This is, this is something that Paul has been explaining over and over and over again, that mankind's struggle and temptation is to run back to what's familiar, which is our own worldview, our own way of living, and, and oftentimes the patterns of behavior that we find ourselves in. And so therefore, when we are faced with the Word of God telling us in some way, shape, or form that the way we're living is in opposition to what God has promised is good and true for us, we start struggling and we become hopeless because we say, I have struggled with that sin for so long, for as long as I can. How am I ever going to break that pattern in my life? And instead of living joyfully with vitality and hope, We look at the commands of God as being burdensome, cumbersome, and weighing us down. And that walking with God is like, for me, in many ways, walking the same way I did growing up with my own father, who had a lot of rules and regulations. It was really strong on discipline, but not so much on a lot of the other stuff. And God becomes this cruel slave master, making sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And what Paul is saying here is, look, that is not God the Father. You are not a debtor to the flesh, right? As he says back in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. What Paul is reminding us of is that if we are in Christ, we have been made alive again to God. Now, he says we are not debtors to the flesh, meaning we must be indebted towards something that would be God. And what he's done for us in Christ. But the difference between being indebted and servitude to the flesh and being indebted towards God is that God has done something for us where the flesh has not. And so Paul's saying, look, because of what God has done for you, you can live freely in obedience to him. I remember growing up in school, you know, whenever something was difficult, I had this one teacher named Miss Linden, and she had all sorts of funny sayings, like one of her famous ones was, Kevin, get out of La La Land and get into Linden Land, and that often meant, you know, Kevin, you're not paying attention to anything that's going on in class, can you please actually, you know, return to earth and participate in what's going on in class? But one of the things she used to also frequently say is whenever a, a kid would say, I can't do that in class, she would not accept, she said that that was not part of the English vocabulary. Now, it's not true. But she wouldn't allow people to say that. She would consistently encourage her students, if they could not do something, instead of saying, I can't, I need help or I'm working on this. And as we're looking at our lives and look, looking at obedience towards God and we're faced with this task that we often put before us, what Paul is reminding us of is God has done it and you can live for him. And then verse 13 is going to simply sum up what we saw earlier in Romans chapter 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Meaning anyone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from God, spiritually dead. But I love this next part. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, it's easy to see that promise of living and assume that he's talking about eternal life. And there is part of that wrapped up into what Paul is saying. But that word in the Greek actually means in the present sense. So when he's talking about living as a Christian unto God in the Spirit, he's talking about enjoying a real life that is active, blessed, and full of vigor because you are fully aware of what God has done for you and in your thankfulness towards him, you are thankful to be alive and know him. To be in Christ is to see a life where becoming more like Jesus and more obedient to his calling and his word is not burdensome, but life-giving. Frequently when I'm counseling people and we're dealing with sin and, and people want to confess and, and just, you know, let me in to what God is doing in their lives. I say this frequently, but one of the, the biggest blessings I ever see is when someone is confronted with their own sin and they're broken of it, typically you're miserable, but I'm often encouraged because it's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you drawing you closer to Christ. Guys, conviction of sin is a gift from God, not a burden. Conviction of sin is God's way of reminding you that you are robbing yourself of joy, but if you repent and believe in the gospel, God is with you. That what Christ has done for you is life-giving. Now the question is, is how can it be so life-giving? Because if we're standing in the midst of our sin, staring it down, it often doesn't feel that way. So Paul's going to spend the remainder of his, his, his verses this morning that we're looking at telling us this. You need to know who you are. You need to know your identity. Right? It, in relation to the story that I, I shared earlier with Oliver Twist, when he knew who he was, he received an inheritance and he was adopted, and he had a family. That is what God promises. Look at the text. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, two important things I want to point out here. One is he says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ and is in Christ is a son of God. Now, we need to pause there for a second because in 2018 that seems sexist and weird and only men are allowed to be sons of God and there's a lot of ladies in this room this morning and so we can immediately become like, whoa, wait a minute, like, are women not invited to the party? What's going on here? Okay, for those of you guys that were here with us back last spring, as we were studying the book of Galatians, you may remember me talking about this, that Paul's actually really intentional about using the term sons here. And it has nothing to do with gender. Paul is referring to all believers in Christ here, and the reason he's using this line is because in Paul's day, inheritances were only passed down to the men. And to refer to all believers, men and women, as sons, Paul is making sure to display that there is no distinction between men and women in regards to the glory of God and the inheritance that God gives us. Meaning, male or female, it does not matter if you are in Christ, you are a partaker in the inheritance that God has given us, meaning you will spend eternity with God and you also are given the Holy Spirit. That men and women are equal partakers in the glory and grace God has given. In a culture where women were considered to be below men from a societal standpoint, Paul makes it clear women will partake in the inheritance that God gives. 
he is not making a statement based on gender, but he's actually making an inclusive statement that everyone is in God's family, and everyone partakes in the gifts and the blessings that God bestows on his children. So if someone ever tells you that the Bible is sexist and is pushing towards men, it's actually the opposite. That in its time period, God was pushing men and women to understand who they were and who he created them to be. And that all of them were important to the kingdom of God and all of them would be partakers in the inheritance that God had given. Now, not only are men and women viewed as equals in that light, but maybe more importantly is the idea of adoption here. Now I need to give you guys some insight into what Paul is fully trying to say because he's going to actually use the term adoption here in a few, ver in a few uh, verses. But remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to a Roman audience. So he's speaking to them about how adoption would have worked in the Roman world. Because Let me share a little bit about what I kind of learned this week as I was studying this out from uh, something that Tim Keller had written up. It often occurred, adoption at least in the Roman world, often occurred when a wealthy Roman citizen adopted an heir if he had none. And it was, it was almost always a male. He would, he would just adopt someone so that he would have someone to pass his inheritance down to after he passed away. Now the way this worked in Roman law is the new son had a couple of immediate benefits that were given to him once he was adopted. And Paul would have understood these because he was both Jewish and a Roman citizen. And so Paul is saying to his audience, right, the, the church at Rome is reading this, look, God has adopted you, and they would have understood adoption in this way. If you were adopted by a Roman male, the first thing that happened is your old debts and obligations were immediately paid for by your father. So if you owed any money to anybody, uh, if you owed money to the court system, whatever it may be, whatever your debts and obligations were, they were immediately paid off by the father. Number two, you were given a new last name. Whatever your old identity was, it was no longer the same. You were now a member of the new family. Number three, the new father was actually responsible for the actions of the son, meaning if this son got into some sort of legal trouble or whatever else, the father had to act on his behalf and petition for him or serve his crime for him. Number four, the new son, at least in Roman culture, knew and understood that it was important for him to honor his father. So here you have Paul playing on his, his audience saying, guys, you are like a Roman orphan. You're fatherless. Do you not see what God has done for you? Paul's saying that our most fundamental flaws with God is that we fail to recognize that he is our father. And because we fail to recognize him as our father, we fail to recognize all that God has done for us and all that he gives us to enjoy right here and now. This stems all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, when, when God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, right, he gives him dominion and authority and basically says, I'm going to walk with you, you are going to worship me by the way you act and live, that by, by your actions and the way that you rule and, and hold in the animals to subjection and the way that you work the land and the way that you run and have authority over the garden, that will bring honor and glory to me which is important for us to remember just in general because what we see early in Genesis is that all work is glorifying to God. Meaning, whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or you work for the sanitation department, your work has value and dignity and glorifies God. Because guess what Adam was doing in the garden? He was gardening and tending to animals. He was basically a farmer, and yet God created him to be a farmer and to rule and have authority in that way. And here God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden with this authority, and he's only given them one command, which is to rule the way that he would and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now, if you're familiar at all with the Genesis account, Genesis account, we know that Adam transgressed by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because here was the problem. Adam distrusted God and did not believe that God was for him and Eve. He knew God as father and yet didn't believe that dad was for him. And since that moment, everything has been broken. This includes even our earthly relationships with our own fathers here on earth. That the design of the family was to be fathers who had authority and ruled with grace, but also discipline. And that everything is fractured because of sin. Now, now, I had a pretty good dad growing up. He, he taught me a lot of wonderful things that I still take with me to this day. And yet, one of my biggest hang-ups with the gospel when I got to college was my own jacked-up relationship with my dad. You know, my, my dad grew up in, in a home where his dad was in the Navy, and so there was a lot of, like, a hangover of just, like, military culture and a high respect for authority and, and honor, and you do what you're told without asking. And we know that most people, once they hit their teenage years, don't do very well with authority, and me especially so. And so my dad were constantly at it. So by the time I, I got to high school, especially late high school, I kind of came to this viewpoint that there, my dad was never, ever going to be satisfied with who I was. And there's probably a lot of you in this room who can relate with me on that one. Dad, dad may have been there, but you never felt like you were ever going to please dad. And because I felt like there was no way to possibly please my dad, there was no, this led to me ultimately, in many ways, rejecting a relationship with him for the most, most part of my late high school years and early college years. We were more of acquaintances than we were father and son. So when I got to college for the, the first time and I heard the gospel, I had some serious hang-ups with hearing what God had done for me. Not because I didn't believe that Jesus had actually done the things that he did, but when you base your entire life around trying to earn someone else's favor and then not thinking that you did, it's hard to believe that someone would earn God's favor for you. Because you feel you lack value. You feel like you'll never be enough. And the reality is, is that I would never be enough, but Jesus was enough for me. Now the good news is, is that God showed me that he was my perfect heavenly father. He was all the things that my dad probably wanted to be and didn't know how to be because his dad wasn't for him and his dad before him wasn't that for him. And he can probably trace that lineage all the way back to Adam of bad dads. Believe it or not, guys, you will mimic many of the things you hate the most that you saw in your parents. Ask Jackie. When I am the most angry, it's often the most when I'm acting like my dad. <laughs> and this is why God came. Because he is the good dad, who even though he was rejected by his own sons and daughters, he went after them anyway and brought them back to him. The gospel says, if I am in Christ, everything changes because God has adopted me as his son. I once was fatherless, and now I am not. I once had no identity, now I have a name. I once lived in fear, constantly worried about God's punishment towards me for my rebellion, and now I don't because I am his son. I once lived in shame over who I was and how I lived, and now I have none because Christ took that guilt and shame for me. I once lived in constant fear of failure. In Christ, my failure was taken by him and his perfection was given to me. 
I once walked around lost and aimless without any purpose in my life, and now, because I am his son, I'm adopted into his family, and I get to live out the cause of his kingdom and his glory. Guys, my life used to be exhausting living for myself, mainly because I didn't even know what I wanted. So I just ran from thing to thing to thing, trying to find joy and partying or relationships or work or money or music or popularity. But once God saved me, the purpose of my life became about bringing honor to my dad. There has been so much joy in experiencing that. So much of our hurt, pain, and loss is tied directly to the fact that we want a dad, but we don't know we have a dad. And God says, here I am. Look at what I offer. You are not alone. You're not I don't care if your family's turned their back on you and you don't have any friends. You are not alone. I don't care if you don't get along with your roommates or your coworkers or your neighbors. You are not alone. I don't care if you have any friends on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the new social media fad is. You are not alone. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the family of God, the church. And God has adopted you as his son, and with that comes all the rights and privileges of being a son of God. Look at, look at these promises, starting in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Freedom. Right? One, of, one of the great gifts that God gives his children is they are free from sin. They're free from the penalty of sin. They're free from the shame and guilt of sin. But they're also free from the power of sin. That God has freed you from all that has held you down. As my pastor in Virginia used to say, you were once dead in your grave and God opened the casket up and gave you new life. Stop walking back to the casket. Hanging out in a graveyard is weird 364 days a year and I think it's weird on Halloween. And yet, if we understand the language of Scripture, frequently we walk back into that slavery even though we've been freed from it. If, 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 if you guys ever read the story in the book of Exodus where God delivers the Israelites, and in the midst of their suffering, they have their back to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is pouring down on them. Now, Israel has seen God's mercy and grace to them over and over and over again. He's performed multiple plagues. He's delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And on their way out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave them gold and said, please just leave. Do you imagine how crazy that is? That you were once a slave and on your way out from slavery, they gave you a bunch of money and said, good luck, please get away. Don't come back. And as they have their back to the sea... They scream and cry out to Moses, it was better for us to suffer under slavery than live like this. Because they didn't hold and believe in who they were as God's people. If God had delivered them from all of that, what in the world was the Red Sea going to possibly do? If God sent his only son to die as a payment for your sin and rebellion towards dad. What in the world could you possibly do that could overcome that? That's freedom. That's what it means to be a son of God. 
And not only does he free us from slavery to sin, but look at the next part of verse 15. But you have received the spirit of adoption. See, I told you he was going to use that word. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So not only are we free from slavery to sin, but then we are invited into an intimate and loving relationship with God. That word Abba is an Aramaic term for daddy. That's what it means. Right? And, and, and th- those of you guys that are in the room that are, are, that are dads or parents, you'll understand this. For the rest of you guys, one day you'll experience this. There are a few things in this world that are more exciting than walking into your home and having your young child run and scream daddy as they run at you. And I've experienced some pretty cool things in my life. Every day, it's like the best. Right? Someone who is just so excited, not that you brought home a gift, not that you did something amazing, right? My kid is pumped because I'm there. Very few people get that excited about me being around. Jackie does not run home and scream, Kevin, you're here every day. It's more like, please save me from these kids. They're driving me crazy. I'm going to go back and hide in the bathroom. By the way, even the bathroom is not as safe from a three-year-old. He will find a way in. But I come in, and he runs to me and just jumps at me because he's so excited that dad is there. Guys, that is what knowing God is like. He's there. He's always there. He is that kind of dad, and he wants that kind of intimacy with you because he loves you. Right? One of the crazy things about being dad is when, when my kids run to me, they're so excited about something. Like they'll, they'll tell me, and I mean, it is the most boring stories on the planet. Like Josiah's exciting story the other t- day to me was, I didn't take a nap. <laughs> That's what you did today, man? Yeah. It's like, dude, way to tell on yourself, all right? <laughs> but you know what? I love him so much, I'm excited to hear it. That's the way God is with you. That's how much God loves you. He cares about the most minute details. And guess what? I fail as a dad sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, I don't want to hear your boring story. Back off. God the Father, he doesn't do that. He's always there because he's a good dad. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So not only do we have freedom from sin, not only are we are invited to enjoy him and have intimacy and relationship with him, but then he gives us security. The Spirit is many, many things throughout the Scripture, but primarily the Holy Spirit is given to a believer as a seal or a promise that you are in Christ and you are God's Son. If anyone has ever gone through the process of adoption here in the U.S., what you do is you take the child for a season of time and and that child is in your home, but then eventually you go to court and before a judge, you take an oath to raise that child, and then what the judge does is he signs the documents and stamps them. And that is a seal that that child legally is now yours. When Christ purchased you with his own flesh and blood through his death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a stamp and a seal that you are God's. Guess what? I know that legally there's some jargon that eventually you can emancipate yourself as a minor. Guess what? It's hard to do. Guess what? In God's court, you can't emancipate yourself. When you are adopted as God's son, it is for eternity. And that is what Paul is reminding us of. That we are free, that we are in relationship with the Father, that he is our dad, that he is been the one to provide that security and that promise. And then look what he says in verse 17. And if children, then heirs. 
you will be given an inheritance. Now, I don't really understand this part. Because typically with an inheritance, you would think like, maybe I did something to deserve this. But we get to partake in the kingdom of heaven with God as his sons. And the beautiful thing is we will be given these rewards and guess what we're going to do? We're going to cast them right back at the feet of Jesus because he is worthy to be praised. But God cuts us in. Isn't that crazy? You didn't do anything. God just says, because you're my son, I'm going to give you a glorified body and you're going to get to spend eternity with me, worshiping me as I continue forever as the God of the universe. And then last part of verse 17. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The last thing you get in being a son of God is hope. That even in the midst of your suffering, There's glory to come. Guys, let me, let, me, let me just say a quick word about suffering here. There, one of the difficult passages in, in the book of Acts for me is whenever the apostles are beaten or flogged for professing to have seen Jesus resurrected and then released, you ever notice what uh, Luke says immediately after says that the disciples left praising God that they were worthy to suffer shame for the name. Isn't that crazy? They loved dad so much that being beaten for him was an honor. Being put to open shame for them was an honor. Because of what God had done for them in Christ and because of their future hope and glory of what God was going to do, they knew who they were and no one could rob that from them. No one could take that from you. If you are in Christ, no one can rob that from you. As Paul says earlier in Romans that he's convinced that nothing can separate us from the joy from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here's how I want to encourage you to finish our time this morning. Do you know who you are? Yes, you have a name. Yes, you have a last name. Yeah, you probably have some interests, some hobbies. Maybe you're a great student. Maybe you're not a great student. Maybe you're great at your job. Maybe you're not so great at your job. Maybe you're a good dad. Maybe you're not a good dad. Maybe you're a good son. Maybe you're not a good son. Maybe you're a good daughter, not a good daughter. I I don't know. You have something where you derive your identity, though. Everyone does. Paul is inviting you and I to renew our minds in who we are. That the invitation is there that God the Father loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins so that the wrath of God might be satisfied and then he gives to us his righteousness and in that righteousness we are sealed by the spirit of life the holy spirit as a sign of our security and adoption as sons of god if you by repentance and faith believe in jesus christ this is who you are i don't care what else you're hearing 
this is who you are. If you grew up with a dad who was absent, who was harsh, who maybe has passed away, who was good but not perfect, God is there. May you know the joy of knowing him as your father. Because guys, I promise you this, there are a lot of counterfeits out there. There are many things in your life that would love to masquerade around as God. They will rob you of joy. They will steal your identity. They will force you to live in fear and isolation. Don't submit to them. Know who you are in Christ. Know what dad has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, could there be anything more encouraging than what we just read? Verse after verse after verse of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you so much. God, I ask that you would remind each and every one of us in this room of the depth of your love for us. Father, that we would view our sin and your discipline of us as love that we would believe that we can walk in obedience and joy towards you. That when we're discouraged and ashamed, that we would run to you. And we would preach and remind ourselves consistently that we are sons of the Most High God. creator of heaven and earth who is to forever be praised. God, as we finish this time in your word this morning, may we continue to worship you as we take communion, reflecting on the magnitude of the cross and what you did for us. May we celebrate by repenting of sin and then trusting in the sufficiency of the cross to save us. And then may we sing songs of joy that would remind our hearts of who we are in you and that God is good. Dad, we love you. May we, our lives sing the glory and praises that belong to your name. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.